Yes, Father, we pray that you would show us your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ, the Messiah, your Son, the Lord Jesus, is Lord and Lord of all. We pray for all these things in his name. Amen. This Lord's Supper service is one of my favorite days, nights of the month, so I am thrilled to be here with you. I've never gotten to preach one of these, so I absolutely can't wait to open the scriptures with you and to eventually partake of the elements with you as well. So as we are moving toward the bread and the cup as the culmination of this evening, please open your Bible with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, all of Paul's letters are written to a particular people in history. And these people lived in particular cities in history. And most, if not all, of Paul's epistles were written because of a particular event or occasion in history that had occurred. This doesn't prevent us, however, from taking the truths of these letters and applying them to ourselves in Albuquerque in 2014. But understanding the times in Corinth in the first century is important for us to understand this letter. So let me give you a little bit of context first for Corinth, and specifically the book of 2 Corinthians. Here's a map of the Mediterranean world. Uh, I think it's now two out of the last times the, we've had preaching up here, we've had maps up here. So Ron Giese would just be freaking out, except he's in Virginia with a new grandbaby right now. But here's Corinth. Now you can see why this city might be a very influential city. It's on a very tiny little isthmus uh, and this, on this isthmus, there is always, since, since about the 6th century BC, a road connecting these two bodies of water. Uh, Corinth, because of this road, was always extremely wealthy. But because of this road, was always a hotspot of world ideas and culture. In 146 BC, the Romans conquered Corinth, which was a Greek city, uh, and destroyed it. For about 100 years, the city sat in ruins until Julius Caesar established the city as a Roman province. And by Paul's day, about 100 years after that, uh, Corinth was once again the largest city in Greece and was the third most important city in the entire Roman Empire, behind Rome itself and Alexandria. So because of overcrowding in Rome and opportunities of a big, growing new city, Corinth received huge amounts of immigrants. Upward mobility of the middle class was a real possibility in Corinth. And it was. People were getting rich there. One commentator says, Corinth was a freewheeling boomtown filled with the materialism, pride, and self-confidence that comes with having made it in a new place and with a new social identity. And becoming a boomtown, seaport, entertainment center, and sports capital that it was, Corinth became notorious in the Mediterranean world for its sexual immorality and its vice. This is New York City in the 1890s for all of the good that that was and for all the bad that accompanied it. But being such a crossroads place also meant that it was a place of multicultural religious pluralism, temples to all kinds of gods and people worshiping all kinds of deities alongside each other. This same commentator says, the motivation for participating in organized religion was the promise that it held for health, for wealth, and for social standing. In turn, the value of a religion was measured by the amount of power displayed by the deity as seen through the consequent cultural, physical, and economic power of its followers. 
The various religions attracted followers by providing visible displays of their gods at work as seen in the success of their members. The more powerful one's God, the more strength one expected to receive and manifest. So you guys hear this, that the people in these days, and especially in Corinth, would have expected to see uh, a God to be real and powerful by the success of its worshipers. Mix this in with the upward mobility of an economic boomtown, and another says in Corinth, perhaps more than anywhere else, people look to the cults for satisfaction, and satisfaction as they defined it, as personal exaltation and glory. And this is the city that Paul stumbles into in Acts chapter 18. He walks in, and the first people he meets is a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And we find from Acts 18 that they had just moved there from Italy, perhaps one of these Roman immigrants that had moved to Corinth to find wealth and a new life for themselves. Paul stayed there for a year and a half, and Acts 18.8 tells us that many of the Corinthians, hearing the words of Paul, believed and were baptized. After that year and a half, he continued on in his second missionary journey. He later heard about the discord and disunity in Corinth and wrote them a letter, what we call 1 Corinthians. Three years later, after the founding of the Corinthian church, he sends Timothy to check on the people, how they received the letter, and their progress. And when he arrives, what Timothy finds uh, is startling. The problems have gotten worse because there are evidently some opponents of Paul now in Corinth who have sprung up and are denouncing him and his message. When Paul hears this, he immediately comes back to Corinth. And the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians tells us what he finds there. He tells us in chapter 1, or he tells the Corinthians, that he was confident that his humble and holy conduct amongst them would vindicate him and his reputation that his opponents had been denouncing. But instead of this, instead of his vindication, his time quickly became what he calls in two, chapter 2, verse 1, a painful visit. Apparently while there, these false teachers had led the people in a rejection of Paul due largely to the fact that Paul was humble he was quiet, he wasn't particularly eloquent, and he taught a gospel that was completely foreign and contrary to the gospel according to Corinth. A gospel of satisfaction as they defined it, personal exaltation and glory. So without retaliating, Paul, he tells them, in order to extend them mercy, in order to not condemn them outright, he leaves and he goes to Ephesus. And beginning in 2 Verse 3, Paul tells us of another letter that he wrote to Corinth. Uh, we don't have this letter. Uh, it's lost to us. But he wrote a letter while in Ephesus to the Corinthians, which he begged them. He pleaded with them to repent. He sent this letter with Titus, and then he went to Troas to await the return news from Titus to get a report from him. And here's where we'll finally get to our text in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at three things about Paul tonight. In 2 Corinthians 2, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, we're going to see that Paul is an opposed apostle, Paul is a dying apostle, and Paul is nevertheless a confident apostle. So before we begin, before we begin let's read our text together. Let's read verses 12 through 17 in chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me there in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But 
Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The first thing that we'll see is that Paul is an opposed apostle. I've already given you a little bit of the backstory, but in these first two verses that we've just read, in verses 12 through 13, Paul tells the Corinthians why he hadn't returned right away. Titus hasn't showed up to give a report to Paul. So Paul is getting really worried for his safety. Perhaps when Titus showed up in Corinth to deliver this letter, they might have killed him for all Paul Paul knows. And he's worried. He later tells us that he would find Titus in Macedonia. And he finds out that a great majority of the Corinthian church has repented. Chapters 2 and then chapter 7 tell us this. The Corinthians received Paul's letter from Titus and they repented. This is great news for Paul. He rejoices because of it. But he also finds out that his opponents are still in Corinth and they are still denouncing Paul and his gospel. They are still preaching a gospel of personal advancement and power in opposition to Paul's gospel of humility and suffering. Remember, in Corinth, the deity is only as good as he can give you earthly power, status, and advancement. If God is so great, these opponents were probably teaching... If he is so good and powerful, and if indeed Jesus is more than just a Jewish Jewish carpenter, but he is the one by whom the entire universe is upheld by the word of his power, then why in the world would he not, if he was that powerful, make his people powerful as well? If he could give all things, money, status, and power, why would he not? These opponents were preaching Those were questions that Paul had to confront with false teachers of his day, and these are certainly questions that we must face in false teaching in our day. Although Corinth is about 6,000 miles away and about 2,000 years away from us, it actually isn't that much different than our lives in Albuquerque. Corinth was an upwardly mobile society that emphasized wealth and power. It adopted religious systems whenever they were beneficial. They gave a particular religion more credibility when they saw a powerful person become an adherent of that religion. So what does Paul say to these opponents? What does he say about this gospel of advancement and power that the Corinthian opponents were preaching? Well, a lot. And that's why he devotes an entire letter of 2 Corinthians to it. This is what this book is about. What is the gospel and why would God's people suffer He devotes an entire letter to this war of differing theologies of power and personal advancement on the one hand and humility and personal suffering on the other. Paul's ministry in Corinth is on the ropes. People are doubting him and his message, his credibility. He's being publicly denounced. So how does he defend himself? How does he defend his theology? How does he defend the gospel? Well, he dives right into the deep end. And here's the second thing that we see about Paul as we continue on our text. Paul is an opposed apostle, but he is a dying apostle. He says, let's read again, starting in 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and to to the other a fragrance from life to life. 
Now, at first glance, this appears uh, to fortify the idea of personal power and victory. Thanks be to God, it looks like, because Christ is leading us in a triumphal procession. He's leading us in triumph. Now, many of you probably know what he's talking about here. A Roman triumph, a Roman triumphal procession was a huge deal. It was the goal of every Roman military general or soldier. It was a parade that honored a general for conquering Rome's enemies. And if you ever experienced a triumph, it would be an event that you would never forget. The general would, would ride through the streets of Rome in a chariot pulled by at least four horses, sometimes even elephants. You wouldn't forget that picture. Uh, it was the biggest ticker tape parade that you could imagine in New York City. So at first glance, it looks like Paul is saying that, that, through con- that though conquering Jesus is in the chariot, he is the conquering general, Paul, or we, get to walk alongside him, maybe walk right behind him, perhaps even ride along inside the chariot with, with Jesus, waving to the masses, right? Sharing in his victory, receiving spiritual power with him and through him, God causing us to triumph. This, at first glance, looks as though this could be a message of Paul's opponents, doesn't it? And many throughout the centuries have interpreted and preached this text in this manner. The problem with this interpretation is twofold. The language just won't allow for it. God is not, through Christ, leading us into triumph. He's leading us into a triumphal procession. We'll see what that means. But perhaps more importantly, it entirely ignores the context of the rest of the entire letter about suffering. The picture that Paul is painting of himself is not triumphing triumphing with Christ, but something which at first glance seems quite startling. But actually then we find out to be much more liberating. We begin to understand what he means when we find out who it is that Roman generals, these conquering generals, would lead into a triumphal procession. They would not lead in their co-victors, They would lead through the streets of Rome in a triumphal procession their captives. A Roman army would go into a place, defeat that army, take many captives, usually including military or political leaders, and they would bring them back to be marched in the triumph. The people in Rome were meant to think, look at the might of that general who has conquered and captured people such as these. They would make sure uh, that military uh, men, soldiers, would be wearing their entire uniform, their armor. They would make sure that political leaders were dressed in their most ostentatious garb. The Roman people were meant to think, look at the conquering general there. So we immediately have a different picture of what Paul has in mind here. He's not riding alongside conquering King Jesus in the chariot, waving to the crowds. He's walking behind him, bound as a captured slave. And if that sounds startling and revolting, just wait. The captives weren't just paraded through the streets and then sent back to their homelands once the parade was over. They were paraded through the streets of Rome to the ultimate place of their very public execution, These captives were publicly sacrificed to the Roman gods. The reason that Cleopatra very famously committed suicide by putting herself in a tomb with asps, uh, it wasn't just out of love for Mark Antony. It wasn't just a Romeo and Juliet suicide here. It was because she knew that she was to be marched through the streets of Rome through Julius Caesar's triumph. And she was to be publicly executed at the end of this parade. She would rather die in a tomb Uh, by an asp bite than to be mocked and executed publicly. 
So what Paul here is saying is that God in Christ is leading Paul as his captured slave to his death. And he says, thanks be to God for that. (laughs) Thanks be to God that he's leading me as his captured slave to my death. What's going on here? What in the world is Paul thankful about? Well, briefly, Scott Hafeman, a commentator who's done much, much work on this passage, says this. As the enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ, which, by the way, was one of Paul's favorite terms for himself as an apostle, a slave of Christ. Christ was leading him to death in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, power, and glory of God. You see, Paul's opponents were painting a theology where the God you pick becomes your slave. Were they not? Pick any God. Just whatever one you want, whatever one will give you the most stuff. He's, he's your slave. He's your captured one. After all, it's about you. It's about getting what you want. It's about becoming more upper, upwardly mobile. It's about be- getting more stuff, getting more money, getting that job promotion, finding a good spouse or a better spouse, having successful children, having a healthy and com- comfortable life. Many of these things Paul addresses in his first letter to the Corinthians. And if your deity, or Jesus for that matter, can help you accomplish all of those things, then by all means, I'll take him. Sounds good. In this relationship, though, who is in charge of whom? Who is subject to whom? Who gets to call the shots and make the demands? Me. This is certainly the theology of many preachers that you might find on TV today. And it was surely the theology of Paul's opponents. God being an accessory to help you fulfill your wildest dreams. And now. But Paul wouldn't have anything to do with that. He routinely refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Christ does not belong to him, but he now belongs to Christ and to his power. Certainly as Americans, Paul's slave language doesn't sit very well with us, does it? The land of the free and all that, right? Don't tread on me. These colors don't run and all that stuff, right? We have rights. It's, it's good, right? These are, these are true things. We have certain unalienable rights. These are good things, right? But the problem is when we say we have rights that cannot be infringed on, including the right we think to do whatever we want. But what if you realized that the freedom that you think that you have right now is really just another form of slavery, only the condemning and the tyrannical kind? What if you could instead belong to a master who cares more about your well-being than you do for yourself? For Paul, being finally free of being enslaved to himself, to his flesh, to his sin, to the advancement of his own kingdom was the most liberating thing that he could ever imagine. Being liberated from the tyrannical master of himself and from the lord of darkness and bought with a price by a good and benevolent master, is the greatest thing possible in Paul's life. So Paul happily follows, thanks be to God, his conquering master, even if that means that he's following him to a place of his own death. And for Paul, that would ultimately and literally mean his physical death, the loss of his head by a Roman axe. 
But I don't think that's necessarily what he has in mind here. In his last letter to the Corinthians, he told them in chapter 15, verse 31, I die every day. And he meant this as a shorthand uh, in the context uh, that he's explaining of his immense suffering as an apostle. He's dying. He's suffering each day because of the cause of Christ. And we'll see in a moment why he is so content, so happy even to be on his death march behind his master. But for now, that we will see that Paul says his dying his sufferings that he's described in chapter 1 and will later describe at length in chapters 11 and 12, his human weakness, his insufficiency, his suffering on this road to death is a fragrance and an aroma. Now this fragrance has two elements to it. It has two aspects, a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. Paul says, first, in verse 15, or in verse 14, That we are the aroma of Christ to God, vertically, to God. This is very much Old Testament temple language, referring to the odor of a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Now, we need to be careful here to note that Paul isn't saying that we intentionally seek out suffering apart from the suffering for the gospel's sake because we think that our suffering is a pleasing aroma to God. Otherwise, we might be tempted to make some like terribly irresponsible financial decisions so that we can live homeless. Then we'll really suffer, and then we'll please God. I might ask Drew to bring up a baseball bat and, so that I can share in Christ's sufferings, break my legs. That'd be great, right? Seems a little silly, but plenty in, hist- in the history of the church have intentionally sought out suffering in this way. So what is it that is pleasing to God? What kind of aroma here is pleasing to God? The aroma of Christ, Paul says. His perfect life lived for those who would not live it. And his sacrificial death on the cross for the many. His separation from God on the cross to reconcile sinners, to make his enemies reconciled to himself. And when we share in that suffering for the gospel's sake, because of our faith and trust in God, we are united to Christ in our worship in this way. The admittedly strange but profound picture being painted here is Christ as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and Paul as the odor that arises from it. There's nothing inherently pleasing to God about our suffering. We'll get to think through this more in the next five weeks through the book of Job. But for those who are united with Christ in his death, our lives do become, in the language of Paul in Romans 12, living sacrifices to God. Our worship to God is a giving entirely of our whole lives and sharing in Christ's suffering. But this aroma, this fragrance of suffering, also has a horizontal aspect to it as well, doesn't it? Paul's opponents were apparently making claims that since he wasn't especially eloquent, because he didn't charge large amounts of money for his public teaching, apparently uh, they were philosophers and teachers of the day basically said, you get what you pay for. And if you don't pay for teaching, then it must not be anything good, right? So since Paul wasn't charging money for his teaching, uh, it must be worthless. Because of Paul's well-known thorn in his flesh, which he discusses later in this book, we don't know what that was, but the Corinthians apparently did, and it was a sign of Paul's weakness. Uh, All of these things, because of all these things, then Paul was surely not of God, his opponents would say, or at least his gospel was not worth believing in, right? Why would you believe in something that would take you down the road of Paul? That would seem terrible and just a terribly foolish move to make. But for Paul, the presence of suffering in his life is not a disqualifier for his role as an apostle. It's actually further proof for his ministry. Verse 14, through his captive death-marched life, 
The fragrance of the knowledge of God spreads everywhere. His being led as a conquered slave on his way to death is how God is spreading knowledge of himself everywhere. In verses 15 and 16, the aroma of Christ through us is a saving aroma to some. But for those who recognize their weakness, their neediness, their insufficiency. And in two chapters, Paul will write, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God is using weak, suffering people so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to them. But Paul does not begrudge that. He loves it. He knows Christ all the more because of his suffering, and perhaps maybe even more importantly to him, more people know Christ because of Paul's suffering. How's that? Because Christianity is not a religion of human power, of human ingenuity, of human wisdom. Christianity, the gospel of Christ, is a gospel of weakness, a religion that is first predicated on humility and human insufficiency. The saving gospel of Christ says, yeah, you aren't good enough. You are insufficient, and you will always be insufficient apart from me. Christ says, the gospel which forgives sinners through the blood of Jesus and makes them right before God is just the kind of thing that needy people are longing for. It is a sweet and intoxicating fragrance of life to those who are being saved. But to many, if not most, that gospel which requires you to first admit your neediness is a repugnant, bloody odor. He says, verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. There are two categories of people, Paul gives us. Those to whom the aroma of Christ could not be more sweet. And the other to whom that same smell could not be more obnoxious. Could not be more repugnantly repulsive. This is very similar to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he wrote them, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We moderns, like the Corinthians apparently, don't like to admit our frailty, our neediness, our insufficiency. That's distasteful, isn't it? We don't like to ask help of one another, and we certainly don't like to ask help of God. We don't need God, we think, because look at what all I've done without him. Look at what all I've amassed of myself and accomplished without him. Or we don't need God to exist because philosophically or scientifically we think that we've figured out the world and universe without him. So we don't need him to exist. And a gospel that demands that you first sit in a seat of humility and admit your weakness is folly to an unbelieving world. It is repugnant. And I recently read one pastor who wrote, I often hear unbelievers make the statement that Christianity is a crutch. It's a, it's a statement intended to insult believers to imply that only a weak person needs religion. And in our culture, it's a statement that hits its mark more often than not because our culture despises weakness. We don't want to be seen as weak. We, don't, we want to be perceived as strong. So when I hear someone say that Christianity is a crutch, I agree. I'm a guy whose legs are broken. I need that crutch. 
When I hear someone say Christianity is for the feeble-minded, I agree. I have a feeble mind. I need the gospel to give me a right mind. When I hear someone say Christianity is something that weak people need, I agree. Weak people need it. I'm weak, and so are you. You just don't know you're weak. All human beings are categorically the same in their weakness. But Christians are those who realistically recognize it and trust in the saving power of another. The problem was to Paul's opponents in Corinth and to many of our modern minds is that the saving power of another certainly doesn't seem that powerful, does it? The reason that we happily continue on our death march is because we are following in the death march of our good master on his way to the place of the skull, Golgotha, the place of his cross. The Lord Jesus did not come to serve, but to, or did not come to be served, but to serve. Though he was God, and he could stay comfortably in heaven, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, bound, or being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is to this cross that God beckons us, the cross whereby faith we find our sinful selves crucified and buried with Christ, united with him in his death. And we're tempted to think that this gospel of death is only a gospel of death, a death to me and myself, my kingdom, my desires. And that's why it might be a repugnant stench in some of your nostrils. I pray that it isn't so, but rather a fragrance and aroma of salvation. It is a gospel of death, yes, but it's also a gospel of life, of freedom, of liberation, The good news of the gospel is that just as Jesus Christ was crucified and buried, so we are raised to new life with him as well, united in his death and united with him in his life. In just a moment, we're going to sing together, Oh, the wonderful cross, the wonderful cross, bids me come and die and find that I might truly live. This is the invitation of the gospel invitation of life, but it's also an invitation of death, an invitation to daily put to, put to death our sinful desires, an invitation to daily put to death the advancement of our own kingdom. But by doing so, find that you may truly live. At the end of the triumphal procession, the end of the parade, you will find the place of your death. But the place of your death united with Christ, the place of your ultimate life. Paul explains how this is possible for us two chapters from here. Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is not concerned about his suffering because he knows that it is preparatory, it's transient. He's not concerned about his body breaking down because he's looking forward to a new one. Paul's an opposed apostle because Jesus was an opposed Messiah. He's a dying apostle because Jesus was a dying Messiah. But because he's united in this way with Christ and because Jesus is reigning even now at the right hand of God and will one day return, Paul is nevertheless a confident apostle. After dwelling on all of these things, Paul asks in the second part of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? At first glance, it appears that Paul is saying no one. 
We've already seen that that's true, and Paul certainly recognizes his own human insufficiency. But then he goes on to defend his authority as a preacher of the gospel and an apostle of Christ. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, meaning my opponents who swindle their listeners out of money to teach, but we as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Because of the gospel that has saved Paul, the gospel that has killed him spiritually and brought him back to life, He's now alive in Christ and now confident to serve him, confident to preach the gospel. We are sufficient to preach the gospel, Paul says, unlike the peddlers. At first glance, it seemed that he was saying, who is sufficient for these things? No one. But I think what he's saying is, who's sufficient for these things? Well, I am for one, and along with the other apostles. If we're unclear that that's what Paul is doing, skip down one paragraph. 2 Corinthians 3 4 through 6, where he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 